You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Wadjuk people of the Noongar Nation, to whose elders past, present and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Netalitsky, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Jacob Easley II. Jacob is an expert in educational policy and politics, focusing on educational accountability, effectiveness, equity and improvement. He's Dean of the Graduate School of Education at Touro College, New York, and previously served in various education and leadership positions across five different US states and the District of Columbia. He's published numerous books, articles and commentaries, including the book, The Audacity to Teach, The Impact of Leadership, School Reform and the Urban Context on Educational Innovations. He is a member of the American Association of Colleges for Teacher Education National Board, the Association for Advancing Quality and Educator Preparation Board, and Region 1 Representative for Teacher Education Council of State Colleges and Universities. He's also one of 10 nationally selected Martin Luther King Scholars for the U.S. Education Department and Vice President and President-Elect for the New York Association of Colleges for Teacher Education. Welcome, Jacob. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's my absolute pleasure. So let's start the conversation. And I'm going to jump straight in with some meaty stuff because you're an advocate for educational equity, access and opportunity, and you do really important work in arguing for culturally responsive and socially just education for all. So I'm wondering if you can talk about what you think is needed in terms of equity and access in education so that all students can have their best chance for success. Excellent. So I will, I think before jumping right in and talking about the issues of the question, I'll provide a bit more context. So as a dean for a graduate school of education in New York, we have one of the largest um, programs that serves as a provider for teachers to New York City Department of Education. So we work closely with New York City and, and schools in Long Island, but primarily with New York City because of the proximity. And as you know, New York City is a large urban context and it is, the, it is the largest school district in the U.S. It is a predominantly minority-serving uh, school district, racially minority. And so that sort of frames the, the, that frames how we think about educated preparation. So I'm going to discuss from the perspective of what we do at the university, which is prepare teachers, leaders, school counselors, people, personnel, individuals to work in schools. So from that perspective, I believe, how do we think about issues of culturally responsive frameworks for education and social justice? As you know, and you've, you've been reading the papers in the States, um, with COVID and the movements for racial justice have really sort of converged in a way that they have exposed a lot of inequities on the social landscape for the United States. And and I will also say globally, because we know a lot of students around the world, particularly low income, have been um, negatively impacted by COVID due to the intermittent stop and start of, of in-person classes and, and moving towards the virtual environment when many folks don't have access to virtual in those homes. So that's sort of the way in which we think about it. Part of this requires a deep look at a commitment of the organization. 
knowing that your organization rests within a larger institutional framework. So while as a dean, my faculty and I may have conversations about the extent to which our practices, curriculum, and support services to future educators support them to be able to address issues of racial justice, social justice, anti-Semitism in their schools, we have to also advocate for our perspectives in the larger context of the organization. Something very simple as um, looking at one's philosophy of teaching. So pretty much every teacher education program requires students or candidates, we call our prospective graduates candidates, to construct a philosophy of education. But in, in doing so, we realized that we um, had not linked that work to one of the core principles of our institution as a independent institution of higher education under the Jewish auspices. We had never linked any of that work to the ideas of Judaic education, let alone broader perspectives around social justice. And we know that that um, framework is important because it speaks to a couple of things. What is it that individuals have learned in their preparation programs, but also if you structure the assignments in the right way and you provide enough space for individuals to have critical conversations doing coursework, it's also going to unearth many of their deep-seated beliefs about education, about access, about what they believe their skill sets are and their own purposes for coming into the field. Is it really to work with certain types of students and not others? Those who are more like me and, and, and not those who are different from me? And I think those are that's an important place to start. So that's just a very simple example, but it's one of the first assignments. And in, in the redesign of that assignment, it's interesting of the conversations that have occurred with faculty. So faculty have talked about how now do we continue this line of inquiry, so to speak, with candidates throughout their programs. Now that this is the approach we've taken at the very beginning of the program. So more is to come. Uh, we're still working on structures to connect the dots across curriculum. Um, and understanding what our strengths are in this regard, and also the areas that we need to continue to grow in. Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. So you've talked about the inequities that exist and that have probably been exacerbated during the pandemic. And I know you, you and I are both from nations that talk about egalitarianism and democracy, but potentially have quite a lot of inequity, inequality, and systemic issues in terms of actually those things being realities. Uh, and then what I find really interesting is that rather than talking about, you know, specific interventions or strategies, what you've done is take teachers or teacher candidates back to their identity and their belief systems and actually thinking about their their purpose and their philosophy, what they believe. And I think that's just that. So that's a really individual approach to looking at these issues of of equity and access in terms of taking the teacher back to their why and how they're approaching their profession. So, you know, that's the individual. And you talked about the organisation, the school or the education institution or the university having to have its own values and principles and, and critically thinking about what it is that it's preparing its students or its candidates for. 
What other things, um, I know you've challenged educators to redesign curriculum, sounds like at your university, your, at your college, you're looking at um, how you might redesign curriculum and, and improve it. Uh, but if I'm a teacher or, or a teacher edu- educator wanting to improve my curriculum so that it's more inclusive or just or engages with issues of racial and social justice, what questions should I be asking of my curriculum or what should I be looking to change? How do I get started if it's something that I'm not familiar with and I haven't really managed to engage with much before? That's, that's, that's a good question. So part of it has to be one's willingness to, to do this kind of work and to think about um, social justice. I would first suggest a bit of library library time um, <laughs> to begin reading. And there, I'm not going to suggest a particular a piece at this point, but there are so many readings. So for example, I my, a lot of my work is in um, improvement and accountability or quality assurance. So I, I'm currently reading quite a bit in the area of equity and social justice and, and democratic education around the field of accountability and, and quality, quality assurance. So I think as a teacher, if you are an elementary school teacher or you're preparing to teach in, in secondary school, you can start with some readings that are specific to your your station in your area and your, your area of interest um, professionally. But I think in terms of curriculum, first and foremost, you need to understand what are the needs of the community in which you're working in. Um, so as you know, we often, well, more so in the UN, United States now, particularly in low-performing schools, um, a lot of the curriculum has become managed. Um, some educators will call it scripted, but I believe now the term is called managed curriculum, whereby teachers don't necessarily develop the curriculum themselves, but they inherit. Um, and sometimes there are times and sequences in which on day five, you should be on page seven or eight, et cetera. Uh, so I think in that type of environment, we have to first, again, understand what are the needs of your students? What are their learning aspirations? How do they learn best? What are their interests? What are the goals they have for themselves? What are the goals their parents have for them? And figure out what those interests are, particularly if they are community-based. And then how do you learn more about the community to better understand um, those things that are potential tools for students to excel. Because once someone is excited about learning, you you really can't, it's, it's hard to, to put a limit as to where they would go with learning. So I think that's important. Now, there are a couple of ways of thinking about that. Perhaps um, you can look at project-based learning, but I think for me, importantly, it is about how to solve those problems in a way that add value to the out, learning outcomes for individual students but also add value to the culture of the school, the classroom, and or the local community. That's a very significant approach because it means now, in order to educate students well, you cannot do it in isolation, and it cannot be done um, by only teaching within the four walls of your classroom. So it requires you connecting with community members, understanding what resources are available and what issues are important to students um, and how you can connect the curriculum directly to their personal lives and their interests. So there's a lot there about context and community and collaboration. And I, I was interested in that term managed curriculum because it sounds like that sort of a curriculum doesn't allow for the responsiveness to 
knowing your students. In Australia, we have these professional standards for teachers and the first one is know your students and how they learn and there's an expectation that you will address those needs. But if your curriculum is managed or so structured that it's almost scripted, then you're not really able to follow those uh, interests or to respond to the needs that you see in front of you because you're kind of just propelling yourself through this this curriculum that's been written for you. Uh, And I was really interested in your comments about accountability and quality assurance and I think one of the questions probably is how do we measure success in education and what does it mean to excel or to have excellence and how does how does thinking about the range of needs of our students and the inequities some people who are coming to our schools or our universities are facing systemic or structural barriers. So what does that mean for how we think about accountability and excellence in schools? I think you, your first question, there's a piece that I missed particularly with the idea of managed curriculum. And this is, I'm going to use, I'm going to use this word twice. It's an ideal or value, but we call it ideal at, at Toro, which is inclusion, diversity, equity, advocacy, and leadership. So one of the, I think we're doing a, a pretty good job. We're on the right track with diversity and inclusion, and we're doing a pretty good job with equity we are still struggling with how to teach teachers how to become advocates. And so in an environment in which one might have a um, scripted or managed curriculum and feel as though their locus of control is limited, we then now have, have to teach them how to become an advocate to address, as you said, like for example, your first standard is know the needs of your students when your curriculum on paper does not allow for that that intersection. And so that's important. I don't have the answer to that, but I'm gonna be honest about it because um, I think there are different approaches. Yes, we do have mechanisms because at a graduate level, our program, most of our students are full, full-time employed, um, but we do have mechanisms where our candidates can work with the university on legislative issues related to educated preparation. And we go to Washington, D.C. once a year. Students attend when when they're able to. And of course, when we have the funding. So that's just one example, but that is not a matter of wholesale um, curriculum design for all um, educators. So that is, as as we as an institution have thought about ideal, um, that latter piece, which is advocacy, and also our metrics that we're seeing from our employers that while we, we, we aren't bottomed out on leadership, we still have a bit more work on teaching teachers how to be leaders or teacher leaders. So now I want to talk about this notion of measuring, which is a very um, attractive question, because if you think about the issues of equity, then how we measure success varies from the larger sort of market-driven approach of standardized test scores. Now, we're not going to throw those out the window because they're, you know, they do tell us something, but we have to understand where individuals start from and what their needs are. So I'll give you an example of um, looking at, looking at uh, data and understanding data in a, in a way that you can now, I'm going back to advocacy, advocate for and justify, not just justify because you want to do something different, but to justify for the good of what you're doing. So 
if you have a student who's completely disengaged and all of us who've taught, I'm sure you've had one student who it it was just the most difficult task to figure out how, how can I get this person um, involved, engaged, interested, um, first and foremost. So for that individual, um, one measure might be the person is now in an unsolicited fashion asking really important questions. Um, you see that for that individual, and this might mean working with the family in some ways. I've actually seen that with seeing this in, in action where teachers have actually gone and picked students up and have driven them to school. Um, so one of them might be reducing um, the rate of tardiness or um, excessive absences. So there are so many different levels around excess educational, positive educational outcomes. But some of those lower levels in terms of standardized tests are dependent on those lower levels. So you're not going to have high levels on test data when someone is late to school chronically or is not able to come to school. So how do we begin to address those barriers? It's a hard pill to swallow and um, to think that, and I, I don't think we should shoulder that responsibility fully on educators, particularly teachers in this case. We often think that teachers in some ways, and teachers are superheroes, but we expect them to be abnormal superheroes where they are, by the, the fact of teaching, mitigating larger social structures and, and, and um, social welfare issues when, you know, I don't think they have the capacity to do so, and at least to sustain that level of work. Um, so how we define it has to be around the issues of equity. For me, I think that includes what are the goals that individual students have for themselves? What are the goals their parents have for them? What are the needs of their communities? Because even we know in the United States, 80%, approximately 80%, we're a little less now, I believe, of, of all teachers are white. But you think about New York City, where a majority of the, the students are, are not white and probably don't live in the communities where the students are. These students have to know how to survive and live and thrive in their own local communities. So how, how can we attribute their learning and the time they spend in schools as a positive um, influence on the community itself as well? So those are different ways of thinking about outcomes. So there's some important things there about teacher efficacy, advocacy, autonomy, and also the disconnect between the sort of identities, race, communities of teachers versus the students that are actually in their care. Um, and I'm thinking about that in your book, The Audacity to Teach, you describe teacher innovation, which I think some of those things you were talking about there would count as this idea of teacher innovation, the deliberate sort of contextualised daily micro acts that address the diverse needs of learners. So you talk about that teachers innovating are not these like massive whole wholesale, whole school, whole organisation innovations, but actually the the little things that they do every day, engaging with ethics and with relationships. And obviously in your role as Dean of the Graduate School of Education, you're in charge of teacher education. You've talked about how you engage teachers in this kind of identity work of what they're doing and why. But I, I'm just interested in how you might have seen it translate into teacher practice or into your work in helping teacher educators think about their practice. Yes, absolutely. So I think, again, I, I want to go back. So you asked, you asked me about measuring. Part of it is data, but the right type of data. 
and what is meaningful data for the outcomes that we, the learning outcomes. And more than just learning, I mean, some of these are developmental outcomes and social outcomes and executive function outcomes. Outcomes where students actually, for example, can see themselves as learners. And, you know, I, I was, I remember being at an ICSI conference once and I learned something that I had never known before, this idea of play. And um, one, of, one of our colleagues says, you know, not all children inherently play. And sometimes they have to learn how to play. But play as a form of learning, I'm, I'm advocating for. But so we assume that individuals see themselves as learners, but they may not. They may have internalized the notion that, you know, I'm not smart, I'm not worthy, and so on and so forth. So I believe um, we have to start thinking about those those types of things. So looking at data, one thing that I thought has is, is been important at a micro level is helping teachers to understand, again, the context, as, as you mentioned earlier, earlier, I like that word of context and I use it a lot and I didn't think of it, but understanding the context of the classroom and again, what are the needs of those students? So if you can use data to say, we've, I've engaged in X, Y, and Z practices because of a particular need expressed by students, um, how it may address school level goals, et cetera. And these are the results I've seen. And it's for this reason why I'm taking this particular pedagogical or activity or strategy approach, a strategic approach. And that changes fundamentally the conversation with the school leader, particularly when you think about folks who have to work in the context of a managed curriculum, because the easiest thing to do as a leader without engaging in critical thought is to have a checklist. And I walk in and I see that your bulletin board meets certain standards, check, check, check. I see that your objective is written on the board. As you're teaching, I hear that you vocalize reminding students of the objective, check. All those in some ways are performative. They don't necessarily mean without another level of, a deep level of investigation that students are learning. So that gives the teacher a base to be able to serve as an advocate when one has to veer from the scripted or the managed curriculum. So I think that sort of ties together context, advocacy, and measurement. So in some ways, you've taken me back to advocacy, which I said at our institution, we really have not yet gotten to. But in some ways, um, as we begin to think through curriculum, then one of the approaches might be using data as a tool to anchor one sense of advocacy, particularly when, it, when we're in a highly, we're in a context of high accountability. And so you've got the data that the teacher uses, but then also what the school leader is doing. So I am I teach, but I'm also a school leader. I'm, I'm head of teaching and learning at my co-educational independent school here in Australia. And I think one of the challenges for school leaders is to think about, you were talking about the ease of the checklist. Right. And I think that the challenge is to think about not what is easy to measure, because a lot of what's easy to measure, you can you can get data and you can say, well, here's 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 a survey or here's a checklist or here's a standardized test, and therefore we know something. Right. Uh, but I think the challenge for teachers in classrooms, for school leaders, and you know potentially for researchers in education as well is what do we really what matters 
that we're measuring? What what do we really want to measure? What will actually be the potentially messy and difficult but important data that we can collect or generate or engage with that's going to tell us what the impacts of this intervention or, or the impacts of it on our students are? I think that's really always a challenge. Then it becomes a difficult thing to uh, for a school leader even to advocate to a district or a board to say, no, this is the data we think is important. Well, you know, it's interesting uh, speak, thinking about supervision and and having having had the opportunity to supervise teachers. I remember once observing a classroom and I was really troubled with some of the practices of the teacher because they were not conventional in terms of what we had taught a, a, around positive reinforcement. She really gave no positive reinforcement. She did not engage in negative, but as soon as students would finish a task, she would move to the next activity or she, if a student was struggling, she would ask who can help, um, let's say who can help Deborah with this question or who has a different perspective. Uh, and so we were taught so much in the US about positive reinforcement and things of that nature. But I had to step back and think, are the students learning? Is a student, any individual student harmed by the way in which she's approaching? Um, her uh, approaching teaching these particular students. But what was more insightful was the opportunity to have a conversation with her afterwards. So she was an ESL, or English as a Second Language, pullout teacher, and she and many immigrant students from various countries. So from her perspective, she realized that this is the one place in the school during the day where they're all equalized. So they're all pretty much at the same level learning English. And so they felt most comfortable in that environment. So she realized the more, I would say, nurturing she was in terms of the great, good, oh, so wonderful. She had a hard time with students wanting to leave her classroom um, after their 30 or 40 minutes with her. So she pulled back um, with that sort of approach in order to keep them focused on the topic but yet to reassure them that that you know if you need help, we're here to help you, but less of coddling, so to speak. And so when she explained it to me, I didn't necessarily have to agree with it because I didn't know the prior context, but it, it taught me a lesson about seeking to understand first why someone is doing this and to what extent is it advancing um, the learning of students. And if it is, then why is it necessarily a negative um, thing? Now, there could be other cultural and political issues in the school or the school district, which may prohibit it. But it's important, though, to think about the conversation. So as a school leader, what is important um, requires a conversation with teachers, um, with again, with the parents. So even though we have standards, uh, and you know, many people do weigh in on, on the development of standards, but you know, we value the perspectives of some over others. So we often are not inviting the parents from low-income families or from rural families to have conversations. These are usually families that are politically connected. Oftentimes, if you're if you don't know certain neighborhoods and contexts, it's it's very difficult to advocate for curriculum that is right for those individuals. Um, so we we tend to advocate for curriculum overall that hopefully in the U.S. should be that that fosters a democratic society. But 
more so than not, we focus on measures that help us to maintain and to increase our political and economic standing in the world and our, in some ways, power and position over other countries, even though we have allies. Um, but I think that's sort of what happens in in a um, in a market-driven environment. Unfortunately, we're not going to get away from that because we are a market-driven global society. And and you can see now with COVID, the impact of the the gap of of, of disparities economically. Those of us who work, particularly in higher education, we've had a luxury of being able to pivot and remove and uh, migrate to remote work. Not all individuals, for example, migrant farm workers, they cannot migrate to online work. There are certain individuals who work in factories, they cannot migrate to online work. Um, so therefore, they increase the level of exposure to the virus and other things of that nature. So I'm going back to the point of dialogue and understanding. The, so I think context is important and the notion of having very smart, critical conversations. And we have to learn to listen and think differently about our own perspectives in order to fully understand the context of those schools in which we're working. We're circling back around to equity and diverse voices and perspectives. And one thing that I was interested to read was something where you were challenging, because you talked about the ideals of Turo as including inclusion, diversity, and equity. But I've seen that you've challenged education's focus sometimes on diversity, equity and inclusion as potentially faddish. Right. And you've discussed critical race theory. So I wanted to bring this in because in Australia, like in the US, CRT is controversial. So for a bit of context, in 2021, uh, our National Curriculum Authority proposed changes to the way that school students learn about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories and cultures, including recognising that Australia's First Nations peoples experienced colonisation in Australia by the British as invasion. Uh, And the Education Minister got up and said he didn't support that, uh, those changes, and that we needed to be more optimistic about our country's history and value the Western and Christian heritage of our country more. So that was a public statement by the Minister of Education federally. And then in 2021, a senator brought a motion to the Senate uh, calling on the federal government to reject critical race theory from the K-12 national curriculum. Now, it wasn't in there, uh, and the Australian Senate passed that motion. So it's a controversial topic. So I guess I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, uh, for those listening who aren't familiar with critical race theory, what is it? But why do you think it might be important for educators to be familiar with it, to engage with it, to to consider it in their practice? So critical race theory came out of legal studies primarily as, um, and for those of us who I I study um, critical theory, but critical race theory is looking at the structures and systems, economic, political, and as I said, structural, that create disparity, particularly around the, the, the issue of race. So if you know, I mean, for the history of the United States, we have our constitution, but if you think about and, and the notion of democracy and all peoples, the language of all peoples, but historically we have not recognized the rights of all peoples in this country. Primarily, let's begin with the Africans, though who were enslaved and then post-slavery. So I believe we began to see a bit more of a just uh, context post-Reconstruction after the Civil War. But all that was turned around with 
with Jim Crow laws in the South that were local laws and state laws that began to entrench on the rights and liberties of of now freed slaves or formerly enslaved individuals, Africans. And so as we think about critical race theory and through other structures, it's understanding how has race played out towards the disadvantage to disadvantage particular individuals, usually those who are Black, in commerce, in governance, and the larger political structures. And so it is controversial because I believe in this country we really have not dealt with many of the issues that individuals feel to be, some some individuals are, are perhaps embarrassed by. It's a reality. We had slavery. But if you look at curriculum in pretty much any school district, there's very limited mention of slavery. And not that we want to we want to remain stuck in the past, but I'm just giving an example. And even when it does, it's very it's it's not necessarily in a very critical fashion. So yes, we have um African American History Month. And most people, again, thinking about canon, most schools will um talk about Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and um one or two or more of his speeches. And that may be the extent of it, um, other than the mention. And I'm not saying that that's a that it's a it's not a, it's maybe a good start, but is it enough? Is it enough to help our students to understand a pluralistic society and a society which is diverse? And so the idea of critical race theory for us is really a tool. Now, similar to similar to you, we have seen legislative proposals to prohibit the study of critical race theory, prohibit um, any curriculum that would make someone, and I'm gonna, these are my words, feel uncomfortable about the issue of race, or curriculum that suggests that one group or an individual is inherently, inherently racist. So from my professional and personal perspective, I don't believe anyone is inherently racist 100% without some infusion from the community. I believe we do learn it. Um, you know, there, there's, I remember seeing the play um, Avenue, I think it's Avenue Q, and there's a line that says, everyone's a little bit racist. Well, well that means everyone has biases, which is true. So, I, and I think about this notion and the tension around the legislative movements to eradicate any notion of a tool that would allow us to better understand the political and social structures that disadvantage a, a, a part of our citizenry that pays taxes. Um, hopefully, you know, there were struggles with the voting rights before when women and blacks could not vote in the United States, but are granted the, the privilege of civic engagement through the constitution. That is really dangerous, um, no matter where you are. Because what it says is, if you think about um, one of our historians of education, Carter G. Woodson, uh, a, a Black historian, who wrote about, in his book, Miseducation of the Negro, how the curriculum in schools really work to erase the Black perspectives in curriculum, to suggest that um, you haven't contributed 
and you will never contribute any uh, matter of significant good to this country. Just looking at the curriculum alone, if you're never written about, never talked about, how does a student over 12 plus years in schools, just thinking about schooling alone, internalize a positive sense of self? One sense of self then is always judged by what is presented as the other or the dominant culture. So what it's saying is if you don't fit into the dominant culture, then really it's your issue and now you're problematic. That undermines the sense of democracy because democracy really should be understanding, in the, particularly in a pluralistic society, understanding the needs, the um, talent, understanding the concerns of others in order to have rich, critical conversations that advance the whole society not necessarily one particular group. And to do that, we, we have to sit with some of that discomfort, don't we, and that tension and, and we have to confront, uh, you know, I'm also in a country, we have a, a violent colonial history that is very uncomfortable, especially for those in power, uh, but that has led to real systemic and educational and economic and social issues that we need to be dealing with. And I think ignoring it or being optimistic is not a helpful approach. Right. I mean, so the notion of well, when you colonize, of course, with political strength, you reinscribe the things that make those in power, um, help them to maintain their power and to maintain their level of comfort. So um, which means that I'm superior. You then by by notion of my superiority, you should take on our perspectives or my perspectives. And it and I'm more comfortable that way, other than the notion of me having to reach to understand your perspectives. And so, you know, they've used all types of terms and structures. So think about critical race theory as a tool. Eugenics was also a tool. So um, to say that you now don't want schools to discuss critical race theory means you don't want schools to critically um, challenge or to discuss matters that might make some individuals question the dominant structures. Thank you. Well, we're, we're coming to the end of our time together. And so I'm going to move to the final five questions, which I call the enlightening round. We'll, okay. we'll try and do it quick fire, but we'll see how we go. Um, so to change tack, what's something unexpected that many people might not know about you? Oh, might not know about me. Well, okay. So something interesting. I recently took up archery, uh, oh. which I I I I remembered. Um, we had a a class in I believe middle school, and there was archery in in phys ed. And so as I always liked it. So as an adult, just a few years ago, at right before COVID, I I went to the range, and during COVID, I actually bought my own set. <laughs> so. Fantastic. The COVID archery set. That's not what I've heard yes. before. Um, and what about uh, next question? What's something that's currently on your desk? Oh, well, I'm sitting here looking quite a few books, actually. So Reclaiming Accountability in Teacher Education by Marilyn Cochran Smith is on my desk. Um, I have a few other books that I have not yet gotten into, but they're all around quality assurance. And I'm beginning to think about accountability larger than just education, educated preparation, but also university-based um, accountability. Because I, I'm wondering at schools of education as nested within larger institutions, 
So when we talk about issues of democracy and 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 social and racial justice, how do we think about those in a larger context beyond uh, beyond teacher education itself? Interesting. And you talk you said you've got a book there by Marilyn Cochran Smith. What who is someone that inspires you in your work? Well, I do like the work of Pedro Nogueira. I now I'm getting back into historical studies. So again, like Carter G. Woodson. So I had to go back and think about studies on the education of of the I'm using the, the age term now, the Negro, but um the education of black children. So I have sort of migrated away from those type of readings, not intentionally, it's just the nature of of how one's work is. But with many of the conversations that are happening is taking me back to some of those historical pieces from my undergraduate study. And it sounds like uh, your work obviously shapes the work that you're doing. And I've heard you ask others, like, you know, what problems do you want to solve? Um, (laughs) What's one thing that you've got coming up that you're excited about? in these oh, problems that you're working to solve? So not me as an individual, but um, at my institution, I've had this dream about how do we help students through learning loss, particularly during COVID. And of course, and how to do it in a way that helps everyone to be to remain safe, but it also providing maximum access for those who need it the most. So we're currently at our institution working with a couple of other agencies. I'm, you know, it's interesting. I think the universe speaks, when you speak something into the universe, eventually the stars will align. I, I That's sort of my thinking. Um, and so unsolicited, in an unsolicited manner, we received some communications and I said, well, let me follow up. And it was really about tutoring. Different organizations um, wanting to work with us to think about a way of providing tutoring to students at this time who may need additional help. So that's a project to that we're working on to solve the matter of, of what may have been learning loss or unfinished learning through COVID outside of our existing curriculum. That sounds like a very worthwhile project and a very topical one. There's been quite a lot of reports coming out about to what extent different children in different contexts have or haven't had that um, that impact. Absolutely. So finally, if you were to distill your current thinking about education to its essence, what is one thought or resource that you would like to leave listeners with? So, I mean, I think at its core, whichever frame you might use, education really is for transformation. And I think first and foremost, it, it is a tool and a resource to transform the individual. And then, of course, again, communities and society. I think we though need we though need to continue to revisit the purpose of education. I, I think we, if we don't keep that question at the fore, we might lose ourselves, or we, we're going to find ourselves going in the wrong direction. Um, particularly with the current idea of accountability and how we are measuring schools, and then how we are tying funds, resources, and politics to certain levels of measure. Are those the right measures? I think there is some benefit to those measures, but do they necessarily transform the lives of students and and communities in which the students have to live primarily and then the larger society? So I think we need to go back, continually revisit the question of the purpose of education. What a great anchor to end on in terms of anchoring all of our decisions in education around purpose uh, and why we're doing it. 
Thank you so much, Jacob, for joining me today on the Edu Salon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network by giving this podcast a rating or review and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.